Ed Ruscha is an artist associated with the American pop art movement. He has worked in media such as painting, printmaking, drawing, photography, and film. Ruscha lives and works in Culver City, California. This is the White Hot Magazine podcast. White Hot Magazine, one of the world's leading institutions for contemporary art, a magazine platform, a podcast, and other projects associated with White Hot Magazine, bringing you culture and information around the world. I'm your host, Noah Becker. I'm the publisher of White Hot Magazine. I'm an artist and I'm a bit of an enthusiast for Ed Ruscha. I've checked out many of his paintings, his books, and I'm very familiar with Ed Ruscha. I've seen his paintings in person, one of my favorite artists. So this is a presentation that he gave at the Tate Gallery. I hope you enjoy. Another, J.G. Ballard, in fact, said Ed has the coolest gaze in American art. Ed, you came of age with a concept of cool, but you were born a mackerel snapper in middle-class, middle-west America, uh, Omaha, Nebraska. And so that's, I think, we're gonna, where we're going to begin at the very beginning with your first image. Okay. There it is, Good. Monica the Glen. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, this is known as the Monarch of the Glen, and it was painted about 1851 by um, Sir Edwin Landseer. And it connects to me because the next picture down there, I should have my own clicker, but uh, then this is like a 20th century American knockoff copy. It's made into a logo, a commercial logo from the Monarch of the Glen. And it was for the Hartford Accident and Indemnity Company of Hartford, Connecticut, which my father worked for for 25 years as an auditor. So throughout my early years, I would see this little image everywhere. I would see it on stationery. I would see it on in ashtrays. I saw it on his uh, company-issued car. It had a little medallion on it that had this image on it. So I... Um, I'm particularly connected to this, and, um, and I'm reminded also that it came from the original Monarch of the Glen. Ed, do you have any idea an, why an insurance company chose that painting as their logo? Well, you got to look at it and think, um, we're down a little bit lower here, we're looking up at something, and so there's some majesty in looking up at a subject, and they probably recognize that saying, Oh, well, this is an easy thing to do. We'll just make a black and white image out of this and use it for our logo. Um, I don't know. It's probably a group think kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> On to the next one. Sure. Um, I've had heroes. This was a hero of mine. His name is Satchel Page, and he was a baseball pitcher, and... Um, um, most athletes make it to about age 40 or something before they pack it in and quit. This guy, as Lore uh, uh, has it, pitched in Major League Baseball maybe into his 60s. 
and he did a lot of fibbing about his age um, and was managed to stay in the game. And um, he said he was a very fastball pitcher and uh, you know he he didn't paint he didn't paint paintings he, he was an athlete and he would say things like I'm so fast that when I go to bed at night I hit the switch at the in the bedroom and I'm asleep before the room gets dark <laughs> and um, he would also say things like don't eat fried foods, it angers up the blood. And um, um, don't look behind you because what you'll see is, is uh, who's gaining on you. So it feels like he's a real mentor for you. Well, he is, and, uh, and I watched him uh, play baseball, and, and he was just a very colorful character. And... Uh, um, had a very high stature in my mind. Okay, this guy is uh, the late Clark Byers, and he was a um, sign painter. That's a, a roof of a barn behind him there, and uh, he would paint, paint that rock city. He would, he'd, he, he said... I never passed up a good roof. <laughs> and uh, he also, um, he'd paint four or five of these a day and he'd get like $40 each for them. And, uh, and he painted for a long, long time. And uh, until one day he, he came in contact with a, a hot electric wire and he got 7,000 volts and he said, that's enough to kill a dozen mules. And he said, so I better, I better retire. So he, he retired. <laughs> With 900 barns behind him. Yeah. How many paintings have you made? Well, I don't know. <laughs> None Someone of them as big track. as a barn. Yeah. So that, that's just, just to, just to um, these are images that you have chosen of people and events and things that early on in your life created the kind of influences that you've carried with you. Yeah, and they just become part of my uh, part of my history, and I admired these people. They were kind, kinds of guys who would, uh, what do you say, take their lunch pail to work, mm -hmm. and um, so I always admired them for that. And um, and I've got a whole bunch of them in my in my mind. But the kind of the kind of I behavioral, it's a kind of behavioral thing as well as a, the fact that he was a sign paper. It, it is a manner it, of yeah. doing the deadpan humor. Yeah, not that I didn't appreciate fine artists either, because we'll come to that in a minute, too. Okay, who's the next? Okay, a different kind of uh, Okay, influence. so now we have on the left-hand side, we have Albert Einstein, the right-hand side, Muhammad Ali, who to me is like the ultimate hero, American hero of all time. I mean, he was like in the... He came along at the perfect time and the perfect time of history, and and he was the perfect figure for it too. And he um, he would say things like, "Well, of course he was a boxer; everyone knew that." And he was a, a master boxer and a master talker too. So he would say things like, "I'm the onlyest champ," <laughs> and. Um, 
he'd say things like, well, he had a fight with somebody, and then he said, boy, afterwards that guy hit me so hard, he jarred my kinfolk in Africa. <laughs> and then the, the pairing of these two, you know, they're side by side in a book about Muhammad Ali, and I saw this, and on the left-hand page is Albert Einstein, right-hand page Ali, and there's only one comment underneath the Ali, and he says, I said I was the greatest, not the smartest. <laughs> Is that it? Uh, I think that's, well, there's some, we could go on for another hour about this gentleman, but um, okay. anyway. We'll, okay. switch, we'll switch genders for a moment. Yeah, we'll go. Thank we'll goodness, go. this is the only female who features in the whole presentation. Uh, you sure about that? I think so. Uh, well, this is we Gertrude Stein. Gertrude Stein, and she, um, uh, she just added pyrotechnics to the English language along with people like James Joyce, and, uh, and she was very... Um, extremely uh, inventive and um, uh, and difficult to follow, difficult to understand, but she wrote beautifully. And um, people would ask her about, well, they'd ask her something like, what was uh, uh, Ezra Pound like? And she said something like, Ezra Pound was the village explainer. Excellent if you're a village, if not, not. <laughs> yeah. And then they asked her, well, why do you write? And she, uh, or who do you write for? And she'd say, I write for strangers and for myself. I always liked that. Well, what would she have said about Ed Richet? I don't, I don't know. That's... Something we'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> what a terrible pity. <laughs> um, this is a man named Spike Jones, and he had a band uh, called the City Slickers. And he was a very irreverent band leader. He would uh, concentrate on, on taking Tchaikovsky and Beethoven and Bach and all these... Um, classical musicians and murder their works with Dixieland jazz and that sort of thing. So he was almost like a Dadaist. And I knew about him when I was about 10 years old in Oklahoma City and I went to see if I could see him. Um, didn't have enough money for a ticket so I went to the back door of the stage door. Knocked on the stage door and he answered the door. This is right before his concert. And he said, what do you want, kid? And I said, well, I just, I'd just like to see, you know, I'd like, like to see Spike Jones and his city slickers. And he said, okay, well, here's a dollar. Go get me a dozen eggs. So I ran off and got a dozen eggs and came back. And immediately they, all the band members threw eggs at each other. So <laughs> I felt like I was a part of something that I felt good. I felt real good. <laughs> so in case you're wondering what the, what the kid looked like that uh, met Spike, 
uh, at the side door. That's Ed Ruscher, aged about. Uh, well, it was about the, uh, the about the time when I went to see Spike Jones. Yeah. And uh, that bag up in the corner that says Oklahoma Times, and I was a newspaper carrier, so that was, and I was sitting at the table of the uh, district uh, uh, newspaper drop-off place. And so I... And what um, are you doing? Uh, well, I was waiting around for the newspapers and nothing else to do but except drive, draw some funny pictures. So you were drawing a cartoon? Yeah. Which doesn't kind of surprise us in a way. Yeah. So was that your, that was your first kind of image making? Or was uh, it about the... Probably was. Yeah. yeah. So you loved comics. You loved cinema. Um, I see, see movies. I, I liked uh, Roy Rogers, Gene Autry, those, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. um, go on Saturday morning when they had serials and uh, they would be, you know, there'd be like 20 minute movies with, the, uh, with all our favorite Western movie stars. I'm not sure how much that added to my life as an artist, but... But it's, I'm sure yeah. it all adds up. It's all part of the... And tell us about the newspaper round. That was uh, 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 negotiating the, the, uh, the neighborhood, the streets, the... Yeah, and they wouldn't... Um, yeah, I had a bicycle, but they wouldn't let us deliver papers on the bicycle because uh, we would always drive across people's lawns, and they frowned <laughs> on that. So we had to walk and what they call three-corner the newspapers, folded three ways, throw, throw them on a porch. So that was um, my enterprise for about three years. But just, just come, thinking about the, you know, you talked about the, the people, the events, those sort of landmark, those images that shaped you. There were things that you were doing at this time that feel as if they were kind of antecedents to the grown-up Ed Ruscher. You were collecting, I understand. You collected stamps. You loved the the print, the feeling of the, the the feeling of the ink on the paper, the 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 way the stamps were designed. You there's a story of you spilling a Indian ink from a from a from a bottle and kind of loving the smell and watching it crackle. Are those real things or are they part of the mythologizing? No, they're real things, and I'm sorry we don't have a picture of what a, a Higgins India ink bottle looks like. Uh, we should have that here, but anyway, it was just a the shape of a an ink bottle that always stuck with me because it meant black India ink, and I loved the way it came out of the bottle, and I'd even spill it out and let it dry and crack. And the smell didn't have much of a scent to it. Okay, it, we'll come back to that later. Yeah. <laughs> So, okay, so here's the, the, this is the child, the formation of the um, love of making and visuals and puns and cartoons. You like words. Words are already there. Is that right? Were you a joker? Did you tell jokes? I don't know whether, uh, I don't know where all this came from. I, uh, I didn't, I wasn't really a, a reader of poetry and uh, I wasn't a great reader either, but uh, somewhere along the line, uh, well, I did respond to... Um, Gertrude Stein, and uh, somehow her line of thinking lined up with my line of thinking, and uh, so I, I 
took a lot of that uh, in the takeaway. So the takeaway took you away eventually. Oh, there's a, hang on, there we go. Crazy Cat. Crazy Cat. This is where the takeaway took you. These are friends of mine, and I'm sitting down there in the middle. We had a, rented a house over in Hollywood for $60 a month. And, uh, so this is, you got to art school by this stage. This was in art school, yeah. And we had a garage in back. It was more like a summer house that was completely dilapidated, but we were turning it into a painting studio. And uh, so this is just a stop on the highway, can North we, New you, Hampshire Avenue. Can you just roll back a bit, Ed? Because as I, as I understand it, you were very much, your feeling or your desire was to study commercial art or to work in within a kind of commercial design environment. Yeah, I thought I wanted to be a sign painter, and I did some sign painting. And uh, then in school, I thought maybe advertising or something like that, um, book design, that sort of thing. And um, and so I I I got it involved in printing, and uh, and then I um, I went to a school. Actually, I wanted to go to this place called Art Center School that was um, the um, Automotive Design Center School of the, of the world, really. And um, they, their capacity was beyond, so I couldn't go to that school. And so I picked the second best place, which was called Chouinard. And uh, it was the Bohemian School. You could do dress any way you wanted to. Art Center School actually had a dress code you couldn't have facial hair. You couldn't wear a, couldn't have a bongo drum in school. You couldn't wear uh, sandals. Uh, you couldn't wear a beret or any kind of affectation of a beatnik life. And so, but in our school here, you could do anything. So, it was free and easy, and uh, and we had very competitive kind of interaction with each other. And we learned as much from each other as we did from the instructors. But the, but the kind of um, modus operandi at that time, late 1950s in America, even in, in, on the West Coast, was abstract expressionism still. Is that right? Yeah, and they taught that at this school too. Um, you know, you'd have a blank canvas and then you could look at that blank canvas for as long as you wanted to. And some people looked at it for an awful long time. And then, <laughs> and then the idea was to attack that canvas and, and make something happen. And, uh, and you had a go at that? Uh, I had a go at that, yeah. And, then, and there were so many good artists that were doing abstract expressionism that uh, I almost felt like it was like saturated with the, the style of painting and then maybe there's something else should happen. And I read somewhere where you talked about that uh, the, the Los Angeles was not a city for abstract expressionism, that the, it was kind of out of kilter with, with the city and your relationship to it. Did you feel awkward about that, practicing that kind of painting there? No, no, and actually uh, a lot of people, I mean, we, we sort of cut our teeth on, on uh, abstract imagery and even in the design courses, in the drawing and printmaking and everything, 
had to do with uh, um, immersing yourself in abstract design, abstract thinking, and less on figurative art. So you obviously, uh, during that decade, early on, made an absolute U-turn, a kind of complete switch in your work. How did that happen? I and don't some, know. You know. Artists take years and decades to move from one style to another through iterations and reinventions, but there must have been a rupture in your work. Well, I think it just evolved, and uh, I could see that maybe mm, um, um, the abstract highway had been saturated, and maybe there was something else to do. And so I started looking at making art and making paintings that were preconceived. And um, I would have an idea about something I wanted to do and then execute it. So that seemed to be the way to go. But that must have seen, be, see, been seen by some as a sort of great betrayal because, as you've said, that, uh, that idea that you, you face the blank canvas as a kind of naked hero and the gesture, something comes to you and drives you, that notion of inspiration, which is so central to that, that period in American art. This was a, a really an interesting moment where you could move from that idea to the idea that you could have an, an image, plan it, execute it. Well, and you I, were there at the beginning of that. I don't know, and I, um, all these things came together, and then my training as a, as a uh, sign painter and my training of just, you know, working with printing and making books and that sort of thing, it just kind of dovetailed into painting paintings. And then um, it moved along in that snail pace. It's a very fast snail. <laughs> so about that time, just after that, you came to London for the first time. Yeah, I came to London, this is like 1961, after I got out of art school and uh, traveled around Europe for a while. And uh, this is an example of something that really shook me up and I visited the Imperial War Museum here and I came across this object which was I don't know about so tall and it was in a glass case and uh, I thought well it looks like something that was made on a lathe or it made it I mean it, I looked at it from different angles and I thought well, what is this a is this a bedpost or what is this and then I looked at the label, and it said, The Endless Mussolini. <laughs> and then I stepped back and really loved this thing. And it was done by an artist named Bertelli. And um, I think a lot of people know about this now, but it didn't... Um, I was not aware of this through an art museum, where this thing should have been. It was from the Imperial War Museum, which is a kind of an oddball way to find a work of art. When you say that, I mean, it's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? And I love the fact that it's endless Mussolini made in 1933, so not actually so endless. But when, it, I mean, it struck you, how can you make a connection between it striking you and then how it stayed with you? And, you know, what is the impact of a image like that on your practice? 
uh, I just decided this thing was going to be important for me, and so I managed to get a photograph of this from the museum. And uh, I just had this, I tacked this up on the wall like a lot of artists do with imagery and pasting things up on a wall and, you know, referring to them. And I've never incorporated anything like the mechanics of this work of art into anything I've ever done. So, but it's still, to me, a profound piece of art. And another profound piece of art, closer to home even than the Imperial War Museum, uh, is in Tate's collection, which you saw in 61. Yeah, and this, this was painted in the same year as uh, Monarch of the Glen uh, by John Everett Millay. And um, I would go visit this painting at the um, Tate Britain, and um, it somehow connected with me, and I, I can't explain why, and I'm not, I was, I mean, it's, yes, it's figurative art, but um, I, it had something else, some other dynamic element to it, which maybe I translated into some of my own art. Maybe we'll see that. Uh, I think you have a, yeah, there so this, this is This is one of those sort of um, conjunctions that art historians get when they're interviewed by universities, when they give you two images um, and you're asked to kind of, uh, describe and account for the connection. So that's what we're going to ask Ed to do tonight. <laughs> um, the thing about Ophelia was... Um, Let's I, go back to that. Yeah? Yeah. Now, Monarch of the Glen, of course, we're looking up at, and it's got this heroic state of affairs with it from that standpoint. This you're looking down on. So it, it, uh, this artist sort of really captured the concept of uh, an ob oblique view of looking at an angle down on something. And uh, it also, you know, it, the story, the allegory, the story of this whole thing with the, with the girl and she's, uh, it's, a, it's a sad, unfortunate thing here. And it's done in such a bucolic, uh, restful manner with uh, it's so beautifully done and um, I've I've somehow gotten that uh, this next picture you you can put on there <clears throat> I um, I felt like this was my Ophelia and um, and this happened to be the art museum on fire and it's also some sort of raging active thing that is happening in a very quiet, peaceful kind of background. It's, it's, uh, and that's what I was attempting to do here. So I always refer back to Ophelia, and I'm also looking down on this thing. I went in a helicopter over Los Angeles, and I took a Polaroid camera with me and took lots of pictures of this building. This was, yeah, 1965, and... Um, the building had just been finished. And um, so I, I worked on, a, on this for a period of about three years, but I always was thinking about Ophelia here. Okay, so Ophelia was kind of in the back of your mind when you were actually working on the painting. I think that's yeah. so interesting that it's 
not so much the imagery in Ophelia, but as you said, this, this very strong perception of a kind of oblique point of view, of a, a in, representation in painting, rather than looking from an oblique point of view, the representation. Mm. I mean, is that, is that, that kind of epiphany moment that you had with Ophelia, is that something that you, that is very rare, or is it, I know, you know, you've been to the National Gallery today, I know you've, you're, you're a connoisseur of um, art museums and art history, is that something that you, that often happens to you, that you see something in a painting from the 19th century or earlier and then can reimagine it in the 21st century? Well, I see these old works like Ophelia and Monarch, uh, and somehow I see that they're, they really have a reference to our present day state of visuals and, and art. And so... Um, and how does that, how does that, the act of seeing, how does then that connect to the subject matter? Uh, well, somebody said, all art comes from other art. And I, I kind of see that with almost everything that I do, that uh, somehow I'm a link to something earlier and, and, um, and I'm so I'm influenced by everything, and I try I throw off a lot of influence. I'm even influenced by things I hate. <laughs> so, um, um, let, let me ask you another question about this particular painting, which I, I really love. And of course, we're speaking in a in a museum, um, you know, a, a new museum. And this, when you painted it, was was a new museum, and. This you first showed at the Irving Bloom Gallery in 1968, and you announced apparently via telegram that the fire marshal would be on hand to, and I quote, see the most controversial painting to be shown in Los Angeles in our time. And this painting was exhibited behind a velvet rope as if to hold back an angry crowd. So I was wondering, what that had to do with Ophelia, but also what did that have to do with your feelings about the art museum at that time? Well, I just looked at the art museum as though it were an authority figure for a, a person of my age and, and position in the art world. And I didn't dislike the art museum. I felt like it had a, a total function in the facts of life. And so I had no grudge, and, but then I also wanted to paint a picture. And I liked the idea of painting architecture, and I thought, hey, how about a fire on this too, just to add something? <laughs> it's like a coda in music, you know, where you add a little something at the very end. Yeah. And that's what this is in a way. So there's no great message here, but uh, it's just... Um, Arsenal's a picture coda. to look at. Yeah. yeah, okay, a picture to look at. Great. It's not a, a discrete form of institutional critique then. Right. Maybe it is. <laughs> anyway, so, okay, so then <laughs> I should say that that first visit to London in 1960, and I asked Ed the other day how he had found London and he and Europe, and he kind of said it was kind of okay. And then I was looking through an interview Ed did in 1980, which is part of the Smithsonian um, 
record, you know, archives of American art, and he had something slightly different to say about Europe and the UK at that time. And he talked about seeing uh, your first Jasper Johns painting in Paris, ever. So he encountered Johns in Paris, uh, on sale for $75. And then you say, that was the only thing I saw in Europe at all. Art in Europe was just out. I mean, there was no art in Europe except ancient art and I had no interest in it. You said you found the graffiti on the walls more interesting than the art in the museums. And then Britain was cold and dark. And you return now on the hottest day ever. Well, I may have said that, but I also... He didn't mean it. <laughs> I didn't mean it, yeah. Uh, I, uh, I just, I made uh, one afternoon in, uh, in London, I happened upon a record store. And in this record store was um, some of the greatest music uh, that I ever that I knew about, and it was mostly American music, and so I found that I could see, that, and especially with the artists here, they were operating at the time in the early '60s of London, that the artists and the musicians were very, they knew more about American mm. culture than Americans, mm. and so I, um, I mean, you could go to many record stores here and find music that, that we didn't really have in America. It was American music, but it was like blues music and Howlin' Wolf and people, you know, we didn't even know about these artists, but the British people did. They knew about it and um, they sought it out and there was even a market for it here. So you go to record stores and you find fabulous things that you couldn't find in America. I mean, we were like lagging behind. We were producing the music, but we were lagging behind. Well, we could add a footnote to the Smithsonian Archive. Um, you came back to London in 1970, and you actually made a really fantastic uh, portfolio of prints, which are on display uh, in the Artists' Rooms exhibition. Uh, news, muse, bruise, stews, and bruise. Like you're not quite news, muse, pews. Pews, okay. Pews, dudes. Okay. okay. News, muse, and the alleyways, pews, <laughs> Westminster Cathedral, maybe, brews, ales, stouts, all that, stews, English stews, and unfair taxation, dues, and unfair taxation. <laughs> Fantastic. So, and news, <laughs> the newspaper, new tabloid, crazy country you live in. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it really it evokes a picture of, of Britain in the 1970s. I'm not sure how familiar we feel uh, about it now. Stews is my idea of British cooking with little rooms, smoky fires and fireplaces, smoky kitchens and fireplaces warming by the fireside. Dews is Dews, the story of Robin Hood, unfair yeah. taxation, unfair taxation. They're still talking about it. The British protest. Um, and how did you make the prints? Because this is not your average uh, printmaking process. Um, well, I was invited to um, to come to this workshop studio that called Electo that was here in London. And um, uh, so I arrived here and I really kind of arrived empty-handed, not really knowing what I was going to do and never having 
had an invitation to come and do something like that in collaboration with other printers and people who were, I was going to work with. So I had to get onto something as soon as possible. And so I, um, I don't know, I started experimenting with um, chocolate and um, caviar and milk, I mean cream, uh, um, grass cuttings, um, and um, organic materials. And as long as the organic material would print and make an image and keep the image, then it was suitable for my idea here. So that's how this portfolio got together. So you, so you were making, printing ink out of um, edible materials? Yeah, and I used the silkscreen method to, to do this. So, so it sort of evolved uh, in this three weeks, I guess, I was here to do this. So they, it just evolved as I got going on it. And, uh, and the printers were all eager to do things. And so um, unconventional materials appealed to me at the time. And they've been pretty stable over the years. Mm. Mm. Um, what I love about this is that you, you're, this is Covent Garden, which was then our um, uh, a fruit and veg market at the centre of London. But then afterwards, you went to the local supermarket to buy your canned goods. And again, you know, the, the world was different in those days. You went to Harrods to buy your baked beans. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, baked beans was another There you ingredient. go. That's you and your ingredients. Yeah. Yeah. And did they taste uh, good as well? Oh. Didn't. <laughs> That's something else. Yeah. <laughs> but this was also a period, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, um, when you were having a little bit of a break from painting. Is that right? Uh, I always looked at it that way, and that it was um, putting things down in a, on a flat surface, and um, so it was a big wide world, and I would use canvas, and I would use paper, and printing techniques, and all that uh, just added up to everything I was working on. And of course, at that, that same time, the other thing that was really you know, big in your work was bookmaking. And uh, we are so familiar with your books now. We adore your books. You know, everybody in this room would, like, die to have a collection of your books. But when it, they seem to come, come, apart, come about in quite a kind of prosaic fashion, how did you start making books? Well, photography, I kind of got onto photography when I was in art school, and I felt like maybe there's a... It had a future for me. And I, um, I was introduced to the work of uh, Walker Evans and mm -hmm. to Robert Frank. I saw this book called The Americans, which was a great book published by 1957 or something like that. And it was a kind of a chronicle of this man's travels ac across America. And he just took a little 35 millimeter camera and went all across America and took pictures of all kinds of things. And they were very unconventional and kind of shocking at the same time. And so I somehow felt like photographers and photography were not really considered art mm -hmm. like they are today. And um, 
now they've got some consideration. And so I, I felt like I wanted to make a book. I didn't know what I was going to make it out of, so why not make it out of my travels, which was this, gasoline stations, and I drove a lot across the western U.S., and so I, I started collecting photographs of gas stations. So it's kind of a chronicling, the, the kind of the, the car journey, the landscape, the, the things you passed. Yeah. No people. Um, I mean, the, the photographers, you great photographers, you mentioned are, are great people photographers or inhabited landscapes, and these are empty. Not too many people. It, there's not too much human interest here. And um, I like the snapshot idea of doing a photograph rather than setting up a tripod and composing a picture. So mine were more like hold the camera up, snap a picture, and walk away. And I mean, they're such modest, simple little books. And you talk now about them that they weren't, you know, you didn't think about photography as a work of art. What were you thinking about the books as just books? Little documents or? Well, like paper and turning pages, the act of turning pages, and, uh, and then to have some kind of thematic anchor to this idea um, would be the way to go with it. And uh, also just the process of designing a book mm from scratch by myself and uh, going on. And so eventually I started getting into this thing and I thought, well, why, why not, I've done one book, why not make a second one? Why not make a third one? How about a fourth? And et cetera, et cetera. So by this stage, they're really a central part of your practice. This is a photograph that a friend of mine took, Jerry McMillan, took this picture. And it was for an um, exhibit I did here at the Nigel Greenwood Gallery. There it is. Uh, oh, yeah, 1972. Yeah. So, so that was quite, I mean, in, in terms of, <clears throat> um, you know, the artist book, this is quite an important exhibition. Very much projecting the, the book as the work of art, the beginnings of that great period of artists making books. Yeah, and I, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I just felt like it had some potency to it mm. that um, also to make an exhibit out of things made out of paper and printed works uh, was a, a variation to what goes on in an art gallery. Usually paintings are on the wall. I thought, what's wrong with books on a wall or something like that? Well, we have plenty of books on the wall upstairs. We do, I guess. Yeah. So one of the things you mentioned in talking about the artist book was this idea of chronicling aspects of America. And those images are particularly drawn from, you know, uh, the West Coast and kind of iconic things that we now associate with that era. Can you, we, we cho we've chosen a few, I mean, the, your next three images are really reflections on the US. And the first image here in this sequence you chose was the American flag by Jasper Johns. Uh, this, I saw, uh, saw a little reproduction of this in a, um, some art magazine or something. And I, it was a little black and white reproduction of this. And I, th I thought, well, that's a painting. And it's done by somebody named Jasper Johns. And I thought, 
Boy, that, how could you get a better name for an artist? <laughs> Did he think that up, Jasper Johns? That's terrific. And then also, it said that this this was a painting, and they gave gave the dimensions of the painting, and and um, um, it's it described the medium as um, encaustic. Wow. Well, that meant sent me running to the dictionary. Yeah. I didn't know what encaustic was, but I was intrigued. And uh, consequently, the, the whole thing, I felt like, how can somebody pick a subject that is so stupefyingly simple and make a painting out of it like this? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought that this is something very important. And uh, I thought it was important enough to go to the instructor at school and and I think what I, I, I said, tell me about this. And they said, oh, it's just a gimmick. You know, so it was discounted. Now, of course, today, these, this kind of thinking um, um, is prevalent, and everybody's seen this. And, and then I think about, back to that subject of um, all art comes from other art. Mm. Um, well, I mean, lore has it that there was a woman named Betsy Ross who, like 1780, began sewing together these pieces of fabric. And eventually, as she went along doing this thing, she kind of invented the, what this thing's going to look like. So nobody really knows how this, where this design of an American flag came, but um, this art comes from other art. And, um, and, and like the Ophelia, this had that a kind of epiphany moment for you. It did. It, it, I felt like this is the atomic bomb of my education. Yeah. And, and kind of that was it, was, it was an image like that, is it a flag or a painting, that helped you get out of the rut of abstract expressionism? I guess so. And then I, I also looked at this thinking, well, this man also, he knew what he was going to do before he even started in this thing. So this was preconceived art. And um, he also said something... So, so just, that, that's really important, that he knew what he was going to do before he set out to do it. Yes. So the complete opposite of the blank canvas. Yeah, where you throw paint at a canvas. Yeah. Some people do that pretty well, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but this, the Jasper Johns said something really important about this. He says, a lot of people that look at this painting are, are too busy knowing that it's a flag. And that's just, you know, a little point of interest about, mm -hmm. about any, anything that you're looking at. Um, now this, I saw this. This is almost like an extension of a, a stripes and a flag, isn't it? Uh, but I saw this and I found out later that uh, this is called um, odd lots. And what it represents here, uh, each one of these lines or objects, shapes, things like that, are all proportional pieces of property within the city of New York. And uh, this man, Gordon, the late Gordon Mata Clark, his father was Mata Escurion, a Chilean mm. painter, and Gordon Mata Clark lived in New York, and he 
somehow got onto the idea of buying these properties. So like the long skinny line there represents a piece of property that he bought that it was like four inches wide and 125 feet long. These are, there's a property between other properties. Yes. Yeah, the yes. slits. Some people might say worthless. Other people say, uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there's a rectangular piece there that's like... Um, 12 inches high by 18 inches wide, and et cetera, et cetera. But I thought the chart is the art here, and it also refers to this notion. It's almost like a piece of performance art that he would go off and buy all these properties. He, he got fascinated by um, forgotten pieces of property mm. that were actually up for sale. Mm. And I think he got some at auctions, that sort of thing. Unfortunately, with every piece of property you buy, there's always going to be taxes on it. <laughs> and I believe that he was a little sloppy with his <laughs> payment of taxes. So I think that uh, finally he maybe gave up on this. Uh, he died at sort of an early age, back in the 80s, I believe. But... Um, um, I think the, the city came and retrieved all these properties back, and I don't know what, they're probably skyscrapers today. Very, very thin ones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is a work that uh, a friend of mine, the late uh, Noah Purifoy, uh, did. These are tires like this, and he calls this the, the welcome gate. And uh, he made sculpture in the desert on a site that's about 10, 10 acres. And um, all kinds of junk sculptures, and he made things out of cast-off materials, plastics, things that the desert air would really play hell with um, by wind and, and snow and sun and... Uh, but he, he said something good. He said, I make art. I don't do maintenance. <laughs> but I, I particularly like this because of the jumble of letters here within, uh, within this composition here. But any way you look at it, I mean, I always see that this thing is spelling out welcome. And yeah, that was just yeah. like, this, is spells, this spells welcome in my yeah. way of spelling. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I wanted to talk just momentarily about Los Angeles. You know, you arrived in LA in the 50s. Um, you just you deliberately chose not to go to New York. LA was the place. And your work just feels so embedded, or it feels so embedded in your work. And there's a fantastic um, documentary that you can see uh, on... Uh, online, where Rainer Bannum, there he is, um, the architecture of four ecologies, beaches and beach towns of Serbia, foothills, utilitarian plains of Id, freeway system that he called Autopia. Rainer came to Los Angeles uh, in 1972 and he interviewed you about the city of Los Angeles. He was totally in love with the city. Uh, he described Los Angeles as a city that makes nonsense of history and breaks all the rules. And he described you, Ed, as a local talent and a painter of the scene. 
And I think you said to him about Los Angeles, its magic was it, it has got the right kind of decadence and lack of charm that it takes to make an artist. Could be. Did I say that? You did, oh. yeah. It's in print. Um, but it, also, when, when quizzed by uh, Bannum about what people should see when they went to Los Angeles, you said gas stations or any kind of edifice that has to do with a car. They're streamlined. That's why I like them. Okay. Well, he was a very observant gentleman, and uh, I didn't quite understand him at first <laughs> what his fascination was for the city of L.A., and I didn't quite understand that. I mean, other British artists came to L.A. and really woke them up, like David Hockney loved it and lives there. Uh, and and um, there's been numerous connections between Britain and Los Angeles. Uh, there's a movie called The Loved One, which uh, chronicles that line of thinking. And Rainer Banham, uh, or Peter Banham as we called him, um, had a particular fascination for the cultural life of LA. And so he, he uh, really made this very good study. He also did a book about the desert very being very observant um, in his study about the desert, he would he would say things like, "Well, he he would observe this, and he noticed that whenever you go to the desert and you see <clears throat> gunshots, they're always when people shoot guns off in the desert, it's always at man-made things, and they they never go mm. and." shoot a tree, they'll mm. shoot an old refrigerator that's tin can. been yes. thrown yeah. out there, or a tin can. Yeah. So, uh, Smart chap. He was very, very observant in many ways. So he really chronicled life in California, not just the culture of L.A. But you were chroni chronicling a different kind of a life, which was, you know, pretty car-based. Well, here's more, I mean, to me, like, this is, this goes back to Ophelia. It's got that oblique yeah. look, and yeah. things are, you know, um, parking lots just lay themselves down there for a camera. This is an aerial view of um, Dodgers Stadium. And then what about the big, the big iconic Los Angeles things, cinema? You know, what, what, was, what, what part did that play? It, it feel, it, these images now make one feel very nostalgic about a kind of different era. Uh, well, look, it's um, Monarch of the Glen. It's the yeah. stag. The, yeah. There it is. Yeah. And the spotlights are the rack on his head, his antlers. Um, and I don't know, I think this image came from seeing movies and when I was a kid. And, and I remember one particular thing that they would, a device that they would use in movies where they would show the movement of one place to another when people, and on a train maybe, mm -hmm. and they would always show it way off in the distance and it'd start with almost nothing and then the train would go zoom like this and then out of frame and that would show time span. And uh, I always liked that. So and that's the zoom. <clears throat> that's the zoom and I, so I saw that and I saw it looking like a gas station too. So mm. it's one and the same thing. It's all part of the 
geography of my brain or something. I don't know. <laughs> and Hollywood, the view from your studio window. Is that right? Uh, yeah, the Hollywood sign <clears throat> I used as a um, sort of a weather indicator. And if I could read it from my studio on Western Avenue, then uh, the air was pretty clean. It, smog wasn't so bad. But if I couldn't read it, I know not to go outside because it was too smoggy. And again, here's a burning gas. This, again, the, the fire motif, I think, is really intriguing. You, 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 in relation to the museum, you talked about it as if it was like a, a decorative kind of a final gesture. But, you know, this is the same year that you made that painting. This is the same year the, that the Watts riots were taking place in Los Angeles. I mean, it's interesting that... It, we haven't talked about politics at all, but it feels as if somehow behind some of your work there is a kind of engagement with bigger questions that these paintings can then become metaphors for. Does that resonate at all? Uh, it does, and um, the Watts riot, I never thought about this in conjunction with the Watts riots, but I'm sure I was thinking about that, and it's sort of like backdoor influence, and so it was, I was, my studio was not that far from where all these riots were happening, so I didn't paint the riots necessarily, but I painted some kind of after effect of it. <clears throat> did you ever dream the Hollywood dream? Mm. When, did, when did it pop for you? Well, I mean, this is a, another kind of example of, uh, maybe, maybe I was thinking of bubble gum. It's got the color of bubble gum, but doesn't it? That's long ago that I don't have to remember what I was up to. <laughs> Ed, we, we have got, there's some more images we can go through, or we could open it up for questions. Should we do that? Uh, did we go through everything? Uh, uh, do you want me to whiz through them? Okay, let's, oh, let's make a whiz know, through. Oh, you know, I uh, have a grievance against my own country. Uh, do, do you have a, I mean, here, let's see. Can we... You can do whatever you like. Well... Or you can try. Mine doesn't work. Oh, okay, so that... Yeah, J.G. Ballard, I found him to be very interesting. Oh, this painting, unfortunately, is not in this exhibit here, but I think it, it came out of watching Superman. And wasn't the newspaper that they worked for called The Daily Planet? It was indeed. Anyway, that had a certain ring to it that had... Um, you know, it just felt right. And, um, and I, this painting traveled to Australia in an exhibit that um, Anthony Dauphay put together. We had this painting up, and we noticed that people were raising their eyebrows when they looked at this painting, and we didn't, we, they would, like, titter like this. And, which said, what's the deal with the Daily Planet? And they said, this is, the Daily Planet is the biggest bordello in Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> and Ed, Ed, can I, just thinking about the composition of this, do I see Monica the Glen somehow in that upstanding view of the, the mountain? I mean, you often you use probably that. do. Yeah. You probably do, and I guess I do too. Um, uh, it's got a sort of a grandiose, um, heroic feel to it. Um, I always liked what um, 
um, Herman Melville said about um, mountains. He said mountains are egotistical. <laughs> I, was, I, I think I knew what he meant. Yeah. <laughs> Can we just let's? Okay, this where is JG? Okay, let's just. This is a. I'm very fond of this painting. This is a, a painting that you very generously gifted to Tate for artist rooms, and I first saw it in your house when I visited with Anthony about 10 years ago. And so it's a, it's a, very, it's a very precious uh, painting for uh, Tate, but I wanted to ask you a question just really about your fonts, because there's the, there's the words, there's the images, but then there's the way you design the words. And this, I think, font, unless I'm wrong, is a font that you designed and what do you call it from? Boy Scout Utility Modern. Is that right? Mm -hmm. You designed that? Yeah. Yeah. So what, uh, how, why does this say Boy Scout to you? Um, I just thought it'd be a good name. <laughs> <laughs> and I, for a moment, I was a Boy Scout. But I, I wanted something that looked like um, it was uh, designed by a guy who worked for the telephone company to make the poster for the annual telephone company picnic. Right. And so this guy sat down and devised these letters that have no curves. They are all, ah. it's made up of all straight okay. lines. Yeah. Uh, even the S and the O have uh, sharp edges. So there's no curves. And, um, and I, um, that's, that's how okay. that came together. And of course, this fantastic text here is from uh, J.G. Ballard. Um, and you two were friends, I believe. And he was hugely admiring of you. Yes. And um, I, um, I, I mean, he's a writer all by himself. And he's, um, he's got uh, so many great things that he said and composed and these stories that he came up with and his vision of the world was yeah. was particularly great. Well, his vision obviously drew on your vision and this, this little folio of images here that I think Anthony or Anthony Doffey Gallery produced in 2000 with a text by Ballard, a stack of them used to sit by Ballard's desk, and when he wanted to write a note to somebody, he would pick one of these cards, the painting, your paintings, not the pictures of you, and he would write his note and send them out. So he was distributing your images and his writing together into the world, which is a kind of nice okay, kind of legacy. Okay, I like that idea. So that's Daily Planet, not in the exhibition. Charles Atlas, a quick word about Charles Atlas. Is this one of the very few shaped paintings that you've done? Uh, unfortunately, they, there's a background here, and it kind of distorts what this painting really looks like, but you can see it upstairs. And um, I uh, went to kind of elaborate measures to bulge the sides of the painting out. So I was kind of involved in this absurd idea that you could get a little extra visual real estate out of a painting if you've spread the edges of the canvas. Now that's a, a very simplistic thing to think about, but, but I, and then the idea of the pipes, 
are going to not let those things straighten out. Brilliant. <laughs> they're in. They're fixed in place, yeah. and hence the uh, uh, the name Charles Atlas. Which, by the way, does that mean anything to people in England? Yeah. Charles Atlas. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He was a bodybuilder. Yeah. He was the guy. Yeah. yeah. So it was a reference to muscularity. Okay. Really important painting. This is uh, occupies a great space in the exhibition and I have to say just at this moment in time um, it feels it like it has huge significance in all our lives. Am uh, I reading something into it? Uh, I've painted four or five maybe six seven paintings of American flags in different uh, configurations uh, uh, totally unlike Jasper Johns, yeah. um, who I, you could say I'm emulating him, I don't know, but... <laughs> but you're doing something to the flag here. I guess so, and uh, this one here, I, f I feel like, um, well, this thing is falling apart because, well, it's like over 200 and something, 70 years old, and uh, we can still go back to Betsy Ross having put this together on her sewing machine, or maybe she did it by hand. Um, Do you think you can repair it these days? I don't know, but but um, and I I felt like any flag that is that age deserves to have a little few tears and tatters, especially if we help it along. So it's actually it's actually <laughs> a fondly image. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it also reminds me that it's actually. Great fun, I remember great fun to paint this. And it reminded me of a, a meeting I had here um, in London with um, the late um, Malcolm Morley, hmm. the artist Malcolm Morley, who was a friend of mine. And I met him for dinner here one night in uh, London. And um, we go to sit down and he gives me this envelope a little eight by 10 envelope. He says, open it up. So I opened it up and there is a photograph in there of a painting of his that is of um, motorcyclists spinning and doing tricks and, you know, like dangerous motorcycle moves. And, and um, I, I looked at this and I said, uh, wow, this is, you, you, must, you must like motorcycles. He says, <laughs> No, nope, I hate motorcyclists, <laughs> but I love paint. <laughs> so Brilliant. I thought, well, how that's great. He, <laughs> he loved paint more than he did the subject of the painting. <laughs> Fantastic. <clears throat> okay. Uh, so this, I did this back in the 90s, uh, and uh, I've always had a... Um, a dark outlook about the idea of gasoline-powered engines and um, internal combustion cars and all that, and I felt like it's it's gradually we're going to move away from these kind of cars, and so I just thought maybe someday in the future this is a future painting mm. from 1993, and we're going to be moving away from these things, but they will sometime have a have an exhibition of gasoline-powered engines. Yeah. 
And uh, so I, I don't know, devised this picture of kind of oil-soaked walls and shafts of light like this. And, um, and then I felt like, well, okay, if, if they ever do have an exhibition like this, that they owe me the courtesy of using this painting on the cover of their catalog. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and you'll lend your, your cars to that exhibition. Yeah. Yeah, great. Okay, so we've got three final images that uh, we call final reflections, and I'm gonna hand the floor to Ed to say what he wants to say about these three extraordinary images. Uh, these are close-ups of uh, currencies. This is a five-dollar bill, and I grew up with the one on the left. And to me, it, it's a um, there's um, honest Abe Lincoln with warts and all, and it's just uh, that image is embedded um, in my mind. And then now we've got the government printing office has gone and given the man a facelift. <laughs> and it's unfortunate because um, what was wrong with the original? Um, what was wrong with the original? Uh, and then I, I was thinking, that, and this is a $10 bill. So this is Alexander Hamilton. This represents a, I mean, he's got a, that's, a, that's an engraving on the left. And the one on the right is a digital image. And uh, I felt like the, you know, that um, the guy on the right, I mean, he's got, the guy on the left, he's like universal integrity and honesty. The guy on the right, he's got a three-picture deal at Universal Studios. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, what about this guy? <laughs> Andrew Jackson. Now, again, this is uh, an old engraving on the left, the one that I grew up with, now we have something, another facelift here. <laughs> the guy on the right, I mean, he's standing in line at Starbucks <laughs> texting on an iPhone. <laughs> so uh, I've got my gripes too. <laughs> So, so on that note, if anybody's got a gripe they want to ask Ed about, we've just got uh, just time for one or two or three questions. So if you'd like to ask a question and hold your hand up. Do we have a mic? We have a mic. There's a hand and there's another hand. So let's go for these two hands first in no particular order. Yeah, and then the Ben in the front. And can you speak nice and clearly so we can hear you over here? Sure. I've enjoyed hearing you quote other people. Does it matter what people say? Um, so the question there was that um, the speaker has enjoyed hearing you quote other people, and does it matter what they say? Does it matter what other people say? Yeah. Uh, uh, about what? About you. Oh. Or well. anything. Everybody's got some false modesty, and uh, I guess, I mean, I think, I don't like people calling me names, but uh, let it be if they do. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's not important. It's, uh, that's a, a deep philosophical question that probably, 
I don't know whether anybody can answer that. Well, maybe not in the like, nine minutes left to us this evening. Yeah. Is that what you I meant? Mean, if you're going to say something about me, make it funny. Very good. <laughs> ben. Um, well, I have a lot of questions I want to ask. Uh, I'll try and distill it into one. And um, I'd like to ask you, first of all, um, when you paint um, the great de detail and beauty that, that you do, and then you use words sometimes, um, do you, what, what is the conjunction in your mind when you bring words and images together? Um, it's in many of your pieces, even here. I mean, there's, there's always this words and an image kind of always coming together and kind of like a, like a dance, um, almost using the first image uh, at the exhibition. Well, what, is the, what is the inspiration? What is the effect you wanted to have on us as, 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 a, as an audience? Um, you know, I'm not being sarcastic, but I've been doing it for so long that I forgot why I'm doing it. <laughs> 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 uh, I don't know. It, it's, uh, I just, uh, I feel like I'm, um, everything I do is coming from some sort of multiple thinking angle that is, uh, it's like a gumbo. Uh, it's like a gumbo, you know, like a, you put a lot of things in your gumbo and it tastes good and and sometimes I feel like my gumbo is full of gravel. <laughs> but um, looks good when it comes out though, doesn't it? It's good it comes out and so uh, there's never, um, um, every time I start to work on something it's, uh, I don't have to go through a list of reasons for why I do something but I don't know whether I'm answering you or evading you. I don't know. <laughs> and the next one. Who's going to come next? We've got one in the front. I'm trying to be really democratic and take from a different part of the room. And then we'll go back again. Yeah? Thank you very much. Um, in the visit to, that you made to London in 1961, you kept a journal, and I think that's what was referred to earlier. And you said... In, uh, just under a drawing of the picture you showed earlier, you wrote, the best thing about any creative urge, passion, is that it happens. And I wonder if that's still how you feel, and also how that relates to the, the, the point you made a couple of times about um, having the preconceived idea, but yet, obviously, you create something. You don't just have the idea. <laughs> um, and that relationship about the need to create, even though you have the idea. Do you, do you think that was a question or a statement? Uh, yeah, I think it was a bit too much of a statement. I think but we my only idea want is, questions. Okay. Um, do you still feel that passion is what, what, what matters? Um, you know, I, I keep uh, doing the same thing all the time, so I feel like in a, in a certain way I'm a, being a, uh, I'm a variation on a theme. And um, and so the my practice as an artist always takes me back to when I was like 17, 18 years old. And so things formed early there for me. And so I don't feel like I'm mean, much different than I did back then. So I probably didn't answer that question, did I? It wasn't a very good question, so. <laughs> okay. 
We've got five minutes. I can see a hand there. Where? It's kind of in the middle. Wait and there's, okay, how about, so I'm going to be favoritism. Get, give Gregor the mic. First? Yes. It's a quick question. What, it's about your rootedness. Um, Ed, why did, why did you stay in Los Angeles? What's kept you there? Um, why did I settle? Oh. Why did you stay? Oh, stay. Uh, I, um, I've looked in the mirror many times and said, what am I doing here? Um, I love it and I hate it. And, um, but I, I swing back and forth between loving it and hating it. And I mean, uh, you know, somebody asked me a question, what do you think the most beautiful city in the world is? And I had to think for a moment and I said, San Francisco. <laughs> It's the most beautiful city in the world. I really believe it because it's got a mystery to it that um, I experienced when I was about 11 years old and visiting San Francisco, and it seems to have kept that aura. And so San Francisco to me is the most beautiful, but I could never live there. And so there I am back not understanding why I'm, I am where I am. But um, so I do. I love it, and I hate it. But... Um, it's got growing pains, and it's got it's filled a capacity with people. I'll tell you that. Mm. Well. In the uh, middle, yeah. Hi. So uh, contemporaneously with, with this exhibit, there is uh, one at Gagosian in Mayfair. I think it's Davy Street, which is Elshimius and I. Um, fascinating little exhibit of your work paired with this somewhat maybe very obscure painter probably the other side of the spectrum versus from Jasper Jones. So I wanted to ask one, is there another painter besides Alshimis and Jasper Jones um, that you particularly admire? And two, also in context of this kind of collaboration, not collaboration, but this, this pair exhibit at Gagosian, what's the next inspiration for you? Uh, well, Alshimis now had, he was a, a very interesting artist. Uh, I somehow, there's lots of his work I don't like. I felt like those are the kind of paintings you would find in a saloon in the Klondike <laughs> or something like that. And, and yet, what, what, what is it about his work that has um, something really compelling about it? And it's, I think, because uh, he's his own ar artist and he's got a, a very singular kind of voice that is like no other voice. So I, I wonder, um, and I, I'm, I'm really curious about him and also the study of his life, him as an artist and him as a self-proclaimed genius and uh, the life he led and the abuse that he took and he loved to write people. I'm spending too much time on Elshimius, uh, but he's worth it. So, um, he would write to people. He had a, a, a very a joyful time responding to people that criticized his work. So he would write very interesting responses to critics. And um, so it's just another um, stop on the highway. Well, Ed, we think we've come to the end of the highway, highway tonight. Okay. And I just, you know, your, 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 the way you speak is every bit as compelling and beautiful and 
uh, kind of frustrating and inspiring and compelling as your paintings. Ah, and on. I love the fact that <laughs> when you talk about what you aim for, Ben, he aims for a kind of huh. <laughs> well, you've given us more than a huh tonight. Um, another, th another quote that I love from Ed that maybe helps unpick some of those questions we're talking about process. He talks about the process of his work as slow like molasses. And I love that idea that, you know, your, your everyday Sisyphus, it's kind of, it's slow, but it's so productive over such an incredibly long career. And I finally wanted to just end that we've heard so much about Ed's life and his living in Los Angeles, his childhood, his encounters with London, with other great people, with inspiring role models and, and great images. And, but your painting itself, is, as you say, is a, like a diary of your own life. And for you, life is full of folly. It's a diary and a diuretic. A diuretic. <laughs> <laughs> he has to have the last word, doesn't he? With that, Ed Richet, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Since 2005, White Hot Magazine, the best art in the world, over 500 writers and over 5,000 articles online about contemporary art.